What's up, everybody? Welcome to Your Asian Best Friends. It's good to be back with you guys. I'm Bernard. And I'm Taylor. Uh, for anyone who listened last time, which I'm sure is like a really small number. Friends and family. Friends and family only. <laughs> we love you guys. We love you so much. Thank you for listening. I know I heard from a couple of friends of mine who listen to our podcast, so it's cool to know at least people we care about you know, are tuning in. I haven't heard from a single person in my circle, <laughs> but to be fair... To be fair, your circle's much larger than mine is. So, um, yeah, I guess I should also promote it to my friends and family. At you know, some don't point. tell anyone. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> for anyone listening for the first time today, Your Asian Best Friends is just a conversational podcast between me and Taylor. We've been best friends for a long time. We're both Asian American, and our conversation ranges a variety of topics from news, media, pop culture, but it's all like with a focus on our experience as Asian Americans. Um, but essentially, it's just me and Taylor hanging out. Yeah. So, what are we talking about this week? Well, so I got, I've just got a couple things I'm going to throw at you, okay. Taylor. Okay. Just got a couple things. Um, we're going to talk about a couple news topics real quick, following up on last week's episode as well, Shang-Chi, which mm-hmm. we reviewed last week. Listen to that if you haven't already. Um, but this week, we're going to talk about Shang-Chi and another kind of news story. And then after that, we're kind of going to delve into. A bit of Taylor's background, just to acquaint you guys. If um, I'm sure you don't know Taylor, <laughs> if you're this, I don't know. Unless... If you don't know, <laughs> we're gonna dive into Taylor's background in the food industry. Taylor was a butcher for a long time. He loves the industry, and um, I'm excited to ask you questions about it. Today's all about Taylor. He looks nervous, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, at least I know the answers, right? Like, I know the answers to my life, so that's going to make it a little bit easier this time. Yeah, you got a little cheat sheet there. Yeah. <laughs> it's Unless... better, better than going through the Marvel, the world of Marvel last week. Oh, God. You know, some lost. feedback I got, actually, Yeah, from last week's episode is <laughs> people thought it was really funny that I didn't how know oblivious anything. you were to the Marvel stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is funny from... Uh, Someone who does know what's going on in that movie to like hear from someone who is just like, who's this silly monk <laughs> fighting? Oh, I can't, I can't say anything more. People still haven't seen the movie, I'm sure, but um, that's a perfect segue. I've got, I'm pulling stuff up on my phone right now. We've got to follow up on Shang-Chi. So last week we were talking about, I don't know if nervous is the word, but we were not bullish on Shang-Chi's chances at being like a big hit like not at cultural all. phenomenon <laughs> i still stand by that statement i think it's big for us like for asians this yeah. is cool but i think we compared it to black panther it's not going to be black panther right still think that yeah we weren't sure the movie was going to make money i was a little more hopeful than you but i still wasn't like it's going to make a ton of money right so here we go, Taylor. Taylor, you don't know that you don't know how much the movie made, did you? <laughs> no, clearly, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not that in tune with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you weren't checking. You weren't checking with the box I was office. Not checking in with the box office. So, Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings was projected, and this is Labor Day weekend. Uh-huh. We're at the end of Labor Day weekend yeah. now. It was projected to make about forty-five to fifty million mm-hmm. over the course of the weekend. Took in ninety million. Nice. Crushed it. Nice. Crushed. It actually broke records. It's <laughs> here. I've got. I've got the records right here. It's. It's the second biggest grossing or highest grossing um, film of the pandemic era. Mm-hmm. Black Widow beat it, but um, 
the article I read said that a lot of that had to do with Delta variant um, because people uh, through polls have said that we're not comfortable going back to the theater again like right. right now, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense, you know. Um, plus, Black Widow's <laughs> Black Widow's white, <laughs> and people know Black Widow. They know Scarlett yeah, Johansson. Scarlett they know Johansson. that character. Yeah, definitely. That's a big deal, that movie. Yeah, for sure. So the fact that Shang-Chi hung in there wasn't that far behind. Um, Black Widow made $80 million for its three-day tally. Shang-Chi made $75 million. Just a little behind. Yeah. Not too bad. Got number two. It is the third highest grossing September opening ever. Ever. It's the biggest Labor Day weekend opening ever. How much are they charging for tickets now, though? So Labor Day traditionally (laughs) is really slow. Oh, okay. Like, it's not like a huge um, weekend for movies. Yeah. But, I mean, it... The last, the movie that it beat was like from 2007, mm-hmm. uh, Halloween, that like reboot of Halloween from 2007. Yeah. And it crushed it. I mean, the previous record was 30 million and it made 90 yeah. million. That's great. So it did very well. Three times the previous record. Yeah. <laughs> it did pretty well. You know, it did pretty yeah. well. I'm, I'm actually surprised. I will say though, not to be a wet blanket, is like last week we also compared it to Black Widow and the fact that we thought, or you were talking about how Black Widow was kind of a, of a failure at the box office, and it didn't hit Black Widow's numbers. Okay, so <laughs> I'm not sure if they considered it a failure. I think I just presumed that. Uh-huh. I probably should have prefaced that. Unless uh-huh. I actually didn't have the numbers like I have this week. <laughs> because if, if those numbers are correct. Second weekend, we're, we're doing research. We got phones yeah, yeah. open. We got facts. <laughs> we got facts today. <laughs> I'd, I'm, I think I spoke out of my ass there. I, okay. I think I might have. I might be incorrect there that it was a failure. <laughs> it was more of you got wrapped up in the controversy of Scarlett yes. Johansson yes, yes. and all those things, but it really made it made decent money. It really, I mean, yeah, nothing to sneeze at. Eighty million dollars, you know. And I didn't read any of these thought pieces, but I was surprised at the number of articles written about um, about Shanxi and the the impact it has on um, Asian Americanness today. So I was actually surprised they got coverage in the New York Times, like yeah. the Chronicle, all these places, and I was. I was pleasantly surprised that it actually made a big, big impact. Yeah, people are actually like, yeah, there's like a conversation going, right? Yeah. Like people are talking about it in media and on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really cool, man. Like it's cool to see, even though like still, I still hold to my statement that I don't think this is going to touch Black Panther, like culturally, no. no way. We we went over last week the reasons we think why it's, you know, this, this movie has a lot writing against it. You know, this is mm-hmm. not, this is a really unprecedented thing they're doing here. New character, not white. Yeah. <laughs> well, Asian too. Like, I mean, like we mentioned last week, black Panther, I mean, black culture is, um, you know, kind of, uh, ubiquitous, mm-hmm. I would say in this country. And, yeah. um, uh, yeah, it has that leg up and that character had appeared already, Mm-hmm. In a Marvel movie. And that's a more popular character. People know who Black Panther is. Who the hell is Shang-Chi? I guess Shang-Chi's like somebody now. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm pretty surprised at those numbers. Um, Me too. <laughs> 90 million. It's pretty good. 
And uh, I think as the coverage of the movie ramped up towards the end of last week, um, I was I think I was just surprised at the momentum heading into the weekend mm. because I think I talked about last week just being like, Ooh, what, who is this? Yeah. Like I have no idea what I'm what I'm watching. Obviously, I don't have the deepest knowledge of the Marvel universe. I'm not that invested in it, so that's part of it. But still, like. You know, I had never heard of them. Yeah, you've never heard of them. <laughs> so I think it's a it's a pleasant surprise. Yeah, man. I'm, that, yeah, it's cool. It's like makes me happy, and it's got like a high cinema score as well, like the critic ratings. It's got like yeah. an A. Really good, man. Like, What'd that's you cool. give it? What'd you give it? What did I? I think I gave it a four and a half out of five. A ninety percent. Yeah. Well, you'd think that's how I would. I'm not gonna get into that. I hate. Okay, so guys, um, if you you probably don't know, I'm a film critic. Uh, that's my job, and I hate number scores or any and like any any kind of score. Basically, I, yeah. I, any any type of um, rating system, no matter how many points you you know, if it's a hundred point system, twenty point system. Yeah, I, I mean, hate them. I've seen your bookshelf. You have you know all those. Like deep criticism, Pauline Kale books, you know, like Gene Siskel. You know, A.O. Scott's not putting numbers at the end of his. No. A.O. <laughs> Scott, dude. <laughs> I could see why that probably pains you at the end of every every review to say yeah, four point five out of five. Oh, I hate it, dude. I hate, but I gave it a four point five out of five. <laughs> I hate giving these ratings. Um. Cheap plug, by the way. Find my work <laughs> at find my work at rottentomatoes.com. I hate I oh god. Okay, I'm gonna be I don't I don't hate rotten tomatoes. I just hate aggregate sites and it's just kind of the same reason so I hate misleading. ratings. Because it's all it just boils everything down to like a number rating. It does. And, and it's it misleading. encourages people to not read the article that I work so hard on. <laughs> I mean, definitely. And I would also say that, like, uh, I feel like sometimes when I'm reading Rotten Tomatoes, like, it almost defaults to 100%. Hmm. And then it takes negative reviews to bring that down because there are just some dogs on those, like, certified fresh movies that I have no idea how it it got past the the algorithm. You know, I just don't, I don't understand it. But yeah, man. That's we can like, move past shitting on Rotten Tomatoes. I know that uh, yeah, it's yeah, probably yeah. important to your. They <laughs> oh my god! They, well, they, I lo- they were so nice to me. Like that's why I, feel, I don't. It's not just Rotten Tomatoes. There are other aggregate sites too. But yeah, like they did Rotten Tomatoes. Is nice. They did like a spotlight on me like a couple years ago. That was really nice. Like they put me on the front page. And but yeah. Anyways, Rotten Tomatoes is awesome. But uh, anyways, man, Shang-Chi, this is cool, man. We're just at the start of it. We're just, it just came out this weekend. Hopefully it makes more money, you know? Oh man, I'm waiting for the follow-up to this conversation when we found out that this was like the biggest weekend that they had and just died after this. Oh no. <laughs> There's a chance. We're, we're just at the start. We're just <laughs> yeah. at the start. So can only go up from here. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows Labor Day weekend, slowest weekend. Next weekend, boom, it's going to be huge. Yeah. If I'm starting off here, <laughs> sky's the limit. You know what I'm talking about? The Dave Chappelle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about the kid and Michael Jackson. 
Oh, God. I don't think we can pull that one off. (laughs) (laughs) How do you... Okay. That's the problem with paraphrasing comedians is that, like, Dave Chappelle can pull it off. Yeah. And he barely pulls it off in that special. (laughs) And we can't. (laughs) I don't believe in us either. (laughs) But there's a question for you. Off the cuff. (laughs) (laughs) i'm not gonna make any jokes how do you feel about listening to michael jackson i mean if i'm being honest like outside of being a kid michael didn't really speak to me as an adult Mm. that much so by the time the controversy hit or was resurfaced and examined in a deeper way than it as it probably should have like years and years ago. Um, I had kind of moved on from that. You weren't attached. I wasn't really attached. So it wasn't that hard to just like not really listen to Michael Jackson. Um, I think, uh, but like in general, the way I view those things is that I tend to detach the creator from the, what they created. Um, and I do that generally with, with almost everybody. Yeah, because it's like I feel like it's not in this situation. Like the onus shouldn't be on us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's like those these. It's it's just inextricable. Like I grew up on these songs. Like I I learned yeah. the choreography to Thriller. That's my right. song. You know, yeah. like I I can't. I'm not gonna give that up for whatever this fucker did. You know, yeah. or didn't do. I you know like it's it initially are problematic for me. Uh, you know, it's like kind of weird, uh, at first to listen to Michael and I don't actually like actively listen to Michael Jackson, like in yeah. my daily life, but mm-hmm. it's not like if one of those songs come on, it's not like I'm not going to enjoy it. You know, like I know these, these, I grew up on the, it reminds me of my childhood. Yeah. Loved those songs. Loved him at one point, you know? Um, but it's an interesting conversation because I don't know. I feel like. I, it shouldn't be my burden to carry to like give up these songs that meant so much to me when I was young. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I examine it at a deeper level, I think the problem is with um, society as a whole, putting these people on a, on a pedestal, you know? And I think that we expect just so much out of these stars and we put all of our um, expectations onto them and then when they um when they don't align with those expectations i think there's a visceral reaction to it i mean obviously what he did or what he's been accused of doing is like more than not aligning to expectations it's like horrific it's horrifying yeah you know um but i think in general like there are smaller infractions that people have have done that have been like grounds of count canceling right yeah and i think that's just ridiculous yeah i agree oh we can't if we ever do an episode about cancel culture we can't call it cancel culture because that's just like annoying to me when i see that no yeah and i honestly think that like the canceling of cancel culture is becoming a huge thing (laughs) yeah and like pretty soon there's going to be a canceling of the canceling of cancel culture so i think uh it's obnoxious 
It's pretty obnoxious. I think everybody just wants to be on the higher moral ground. Yeah, everyone's you know? like just scrambling. Just, yeah, it's like king what? of the hill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been woke for longer. <laughs> I evolved faster than you did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like it's just a silly, silly game that like nobody in real life actually plays. It's like a game people play on the internet. All right, Taylor. So I got something else to throw at you. George Takei, in an interview recently, brought up the Japanese internment camps, mm-hmm. World War II. Um, I, you know, the thing about this um, atrocity is that it's just like woefully underrepresented and, and not discussed in almost any forum. On any level, even in even academically, right? Like, like mm-hmm. I, we don't hear about this in schools, or at least we didn't. We're we're old though. No, I'm pushing forty, so <laughs> according <laughs> to my little brother. <laughs> um, and George C. is one of the real ones who keeps awareness alive via his platform, which I think is like a brave thing to do and like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I admire him. Um, for that reason, I'm Filipino American. Taylor is Japanese American. So I just wanted to bounce this off you, you know, what this means to you and what maybe what George Takei means to you for doing stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, he's been pretty consistent about it for as long as I can remember um, continuing to surface it. I haven't seen this most recent example that you um, are speaking to, but it doesn't surprise me. Like he's always used his platform to kind of shine shine a light on it um, because he was in the internment camps and he experienced it firsthand. And I don't think, you know, to your point, it's another like just horrific thing that we've done in the United States. And it's something that I didn't learn about until I was in high school. Mm. I was reading um, an assigned book called uh, Farewell to Manzanar. And it was the first time I had ever learned of the internment camps. And I'm a Japanese American. And it was shocking to me. And the thing that was even more shocking to me was that my teacher at that time said it was um, unfortunate, but it needed to happen. No shit. Yeah. That was my introduction. Like that was, that was my introduction to that, um, to the whole thing. Whoa. Um, that teacher was fired actually. Um, shortly after, I don't know if it was related. After you complained. <laughs> yeah. After <laughs> I was like, I'm clearly being taught by a bigot. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if it was, I honestly don't know if it was related. It would not surprise me if it wasn't related, but, um, it's absolutely insane. And I think, at that moment, because I had learned about it so late in life, I made it like a big mission of mine that like when I have kids, the first thing I'm going to tell them is about this shit mm. and to show them like, hey, this country will turn its back on you in an instant if you're not watching. Yeah, just for the... Just for... Just for your ancestry. Just for your ancestry. Yeah. And it's not like we're that remote far removed from it. I mean, just like what the Muslim ban in 2016, yeah. they used the camps as a justification. Right. It wasn't like this was this horrific thing that happened in our past. It was like, 
well, we did it before. We can do it again. Like we've set the precedent before that we can do this. Yeah, the language is super insidious. And how, it is. How they, how they, you know, um, um, send these orders out. The way they're written is so easily um, abused. Yeah. That, yeah, they, to this day, like to your point, like to this day, they can still do shit like this. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. And it's something that, I mean, I would say, and I'm not exact. I don't think I'm exaggerating here. I think once a month, I remind my kids mm. about, about it to be like, watch your back. Yeah. And they're yeah. like, two and five and seven. And they're just like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and they look super white. They'll so remember. <laughs> but that's good, man. Like, they'll remember you telling them that, you know? That's good. Yeah. No, I mean, it's. It's crazy. I mean, I didn't learn about it because it didn't directly affect my family. But like, give or take a couple of years, we've been in those camps too. Yeah. And that's just, it's crazy. Well, and the whole, you know, the most evil thing about how they enacted that, that whole thing was that they probably wouldn't have given a fuck if... You know, if you had nothing, like if they were to happen today, they wouldn't care if 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 you, if you yeah. had nothing to do with it, anything. It was just like, well, you're Japanese, so. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's how it was last time. I mean, that's how it was when the first order came out, right? And you still can see the repercussions across even the Bay Area. Like yeah. there's farms that were taken away from Japanese Americans that weren't given back. They, they took their property, they took their lives, they took their businesses. And then they just like, set him out to nothing, right? Like this whole yeah. life that they had built previous to the internment um, was taken away from them and it was never given back. Just to, just to leave, um, you know, Asian Americans, Americans yeah, high and dry after treating them like that. Um, and, and you know, I was shocked too when I learned about this. Um, I can't remember when I learned. I think I learned kind of slowly, like over time, you know, yeah. but, uh, what was so shocking is just kind of how recent it was. Yeah. It wasn't you know? that far away. I mean, my dad was born like a, maybe a decade after it all, all happened. So it's not like it was that far removed from it. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk, um, especially recently about, this notion of reparations and if it's, if it should, if we should finally like face up with our past. And I think you absolutely have to look at this as another instance of like, you took something away from people, you never gave it back. And there's just decades and decades of aftershocks from something like that, you know? Like there's horrific things that we've done in this country that we need to own, you know? And I think there is an apology given at some point through a lot of, you know, a lot of fighting for people just to be heard and to be recognized that this is a thing that you did to us. But like, I don't know, there needs to be more. I agree. Um, I'm positive we'll be talking about this more in future episodes like this. Um, the knowledge of, you know, the internment camps, concentration camps has affected Taylor and I in different ways and, and, and uh, really 
kind of interesting ways <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that I didn't expect. We'll talk about that in a future episode for sure. Cause this was, uh, uh, this is an issue that, that needs uh, far more awareness and props to George Takei for, for, for doing that. What do you say exactly? I've got the quote right here. It's, a very shameful and still little known chapter of American history. And so it's been my mission in life to raise that awareness. It is so important for all Americans to know this history where American democracy with all its noble ideals failed. Yeah. Powerful. Mm-hmm. Powerful. Yeah. Oh man. So this is going to sound like a joke. <laughs> and it, it kind <laughs> of is. Segway. Speaking of internment. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm a monster. No, I'm not going to say it. I'm not say you have it. to say it now. No. You no. have to. You have to. Okay, so it's going to sound like a joke, but this comes from like a genuine place. But from, <laughs> oh God, no, I'm not no, saying you have, it. To, you have to. It's offensive now I that I think about no, it. I'm not to, doing it. I'll cut it I'll out. I'll tell you, I'll tell no, you. I'll, I'll cut, I'll cut no, it out. You won't. <laughs> I swear I'll cut it out. Okay, swear on your kids. So what I wanted to talk about today was something that uh, Taylor and I talk about often, uh, the food industry. We were both in the food industry once upon a time. Uh, Taylor for much longer than me, which is why we're going to be talking about <laughs> Taylor today. Um, but the, the food industry is tough, man. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, conversation for another day, but it literally almost killed me. Mm-hmm. Really tough industry. Um, but today we're talking about, Taylor, how you, how you got into the industry and kind of what it's like from your perspective to be an Asian American entering into that industry. It's very competitive, very masculine. Mm-hmm. toxic as fuck. I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it still is today. You know, we've been out the game for a while. Yeah. But it really toxic from what <laughs> I remember. Um, so yeah, like let's talk about like how you got in to the industry and, and what drew you to it. Because I know this is a long story and we're not going to get to everything. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think what drew me to it, which is uh, I think embarrassing as I have grown older and wiser was the toxicity of it all. Like I think at the time when I was drawn to it, um, I don't know if I was in the best of spaces in my life. I think I was in like probably a pretty dark place. And I think because of that, I was drawn Mm. to dark places. And I think the food industry at that time was a pretty dark place. Um, and don't get me wrong, I loved it. Like, and I still love it. And I've met some of my absolute f- favorite people in that industry that are still some of my favorite people today. But there's a lot of bullshit that goes on mm. with that industry that I think you just have to confront on a day in, day out basis. And I think part of that is just like that whole toxic masculinity aspect of it, right? And I think that's ultimately what drew me to it because as an Asian American male, I think you're constantly trying to fight against this stereotype of being less than masculine. Right. Right. And you're always trying to find ways to, um, I think, demonstrate your masculinity in, in certain ways. 
and that was an easy way for me to mm. to do it was like look at me i can do this and this is way harder than whatever this guy's doing i promise you um and also it was one of those jobs where i mean it's a true meritocracy in a lot of senses like there's a lot of stuff that goes on that it's it's not a level playing field for for a lot of people yeah um but like if you're good you're gonna rise to the top in most instances right and you can easily demonstrate your skill and then you can easily demonstrate how bad you are as well every second you have an opportunity to demonstrate how good you are yeah exactly um and i think that's what drew me to it and the abuse in some weird way drew me to it as well yeah, not it's only weird yeah it's weird it's like you know you you form these bonds through shared trauma in a way and there's a lot of you know really um famous chefs now that are re-examining what their role was in in those environments david chang being one of them and he talked a lot about just like PTSD of just cooks are coming out of there with PTSD based off of like, it's an insane environment. Yeah. Like I remember when I first um, entered the industry and I was speaking to um, a lot of chefs, I had one chef tell me, he said, there's um, no more high pressure environment than the kitchen outside of maybe being in an emergency room. And I think you feel that at all times, <laughs> like this just sense of any wrong turn or any misstep, you're going to fail and just fall flat on your yeah, face. Fight or flight, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's such an adrenaline rush and it's so addicting. And I think that's ultimately what, what drew me to it. Before we move on, let's like kind of give people a background on like how long were you in the industry? What did you? What kind of work did you do? Where did you work? Uh, maybe not specifics if you don't want to share, but like yeah. you know, just in general. Um, I was in the industry for about a decade, um, probably just a little bit under that. Um, and honestly, I I think I saw the industry evolve around me. I think I caught the tail end of a better version of the food industry. Mm. Um, and I started as a line cook, um, but my um, ultimate destination and what I was always trying to get to was to be um, a butcher and to, in particular, to, to make charcuterie and salamis and those sorts of things. Um, so I quickly, when the opportunity presented itself, went into that industry and the person that was the head of the company I was working for was a very famous chef in the Bay area. And he ran his, um, the, you know, the salami arm of his, his business like a kitchen. Um, which that's you know, cool. I think I, I thought it was cool. great. Yeah. I mean, I thought I, I loved it and, um, it was kind of like the best, the best of both worlds. It's like you had the adrenaline of like, you have to hit your marks. You have to like do everything perfectly. And, you know, as you're packaging something, you're actually plating something like all these like huge, um, 
pressures that were ultimately like really thrilling in the end. Um, and I spent most of my time there back and forth and then, uh, worked for pretty much every, at that time, every like holistic, um, whole animal, right. Butchery, right. butchery spot. Um, but yeah. And as I was saying, like, I think when I entered the industry, um, it was at its, at the most toxic that I saw it. Um, mm. It's sort of at the start when you came in as a line cook. When I came in as a line what cook. What year was that? 2008, I think. Yeah, I think around 2008. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, you know, everything that you read about, like everything, like the sexual harassment, the like drugs, the alcohol, everything. And, um, the late nights, the partying, the is is all that, and even when I moved on to like the meat plant that I was working at, like it was you know a lot of the same behavior that mm. I saw there. Um, don't get me wrong; like it wasn't like I was just um, I wasn't just a victim of it. I was totally pushing that culture at the same time. Right. You can't, you can't like, we can't dodge culpability. No, no, no. Um, cause we were, we were both part of that, you know? I, yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a weird thing. Like talk about like, it's an abusive environment and mm-hmm. a lot of it is self abuse, right? I mean, we both incurred oh, yeah. a lot of mental and physical, um, damage, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to say the least, uh, I barely got out of there, you know? Yeah. Um, but that was also part of the, the allure, you know, yeah. I almost kind of liked being beat up all the time. It, 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 I felt proud that I was tired and, and it's so weird. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> it's, it's like terrible. in hindsight, I'm like, why was I like that? Yeah. Like, especially me. Like I'm a kind of a sunny person, you know, like yeah. I'm like a happy guy. I try, try to be nice to everyone. I was a screamer, dude. Like when I was sous chef, I was yelling at people. Oh yeah. I would throw shit, you know. I can't it's like it wasn't even me. Yeah. It's so strange. The weirdest part about it all is I look back at that and I'm uh equal parts disgusted with myself and also looking back on it like, man, those were great, great times. <laughs> it's a hell of a drug, man. It's a hell of a drug. <laughs> you know, it totally is. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It it was, you know, I don't have a sunny disposition. We're very different people. So I think my draw to the industry was probably very clear for a lot of people. Um, but even now, like the people I work with now in a completely different industry, they do not understand. Taylor's how... a male dancer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Currently. Um, they don't understand how I was like this person that yelled and screamed mm. at people and all those. So things. you didn't carry that attitude into your current role? No, I think I would have been fired. Probably would have been kicked out. Within like, within like the first day. <laughs> I mean, that was honestly, that was the hardest part about leaving the industry was like learning how to act like a civilian again. <laughs> you know, like how do you act like a normal person? There's like etiquette. There's etiquette. There's shit Bureaucracy. You, you know, like. The things I heard in kitchens and like, I would never repeat them. Even to you, I don't think I'd repeat them. And you can't, 
could take those things out of that environment and place them in the real world and think that it's acceptable, you know? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like there's some part of me that misses just the rawness of that time of there not being any filters on anything, no filters on behavior, no filters on language, no filters on absolutely anything. Put up or shut up. You can't hide. There's nowhere to hide. Yeah. If you suck, you suck. Yeah, totally. And you'll be told so, you know? And I think, but I think, you know, as I've grown older and I look back at it, I think a lot about the damage I caused people because I've experienced damage myself and I think I'm still working through a lot of it. Mm. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. You yeah. know, I don't, I actually, I don't know. Like I, I feel sorry and I feel, I feel, I think I feel shame a lot of a lot of the time when I look back at like that behavior. Um, but it's really hard to take yourself out of that situation, you know, take yeah. yourself out of the environment that you're in. Ultimately. It becomes, it's like everything that you are almost, right? Oh, it's like your entire identity. Yeah. Like. It rides on your performance. It's, yeah. Yeah. I've never been so entwined with the work that I've done. Um, and I don't think I ever will be again unless I go back to the industry. That's the other thing is like, if I ever went back, I don't think I'd be an asshole. I think I'd be a regular human being because I think that's honestly thankfully where the industry is trending. Yeah. Um, but I do know that my value would probably be wrapped up in that work way more than it is today. Is there a healthy way to do that? I don't know. I don't know if there is a healthy way to do it. Um, just hire more people, I guess Yeah. <laughs> to get the work done. Right. Like, I yeah. mean, cause I then mean, you don't have to work as, uh, feverishly. There's like more people working, but it just takes it. I get what you mean. Like, it's like you want to just push yourself. Yeah. That's the whole, that's the whole culture, right? Like just push and push. I mean, we're literally yelling that, you know, all night. (laughs) Push. (laughs) Um, and it's cool. It was like, it was, uh, exhilarating. Yeah. The stakes feel super high, but then you look back and it's like, man, that's an ugly time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not proud in certain ways. Not proud proud in certain ways, but like, I do think about like some of my closest friends came from that, you know, and those friends, I think we both saw each other. We saw each other at our worst behavior in some weird ways, very intimate about that. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like we saw each other, you know, at our worst. And I think that's, and at our best, like it's not terrible. Like, I mean, it's, there's a lot of bullshit that happens in this. It's not like we were miserable or anything. Like, it's a beautiful thing, yeah, you know, yeah. and you're making beautiful products or dishes. Or people, you're making like, people happy. You're making people happy in ways that like you honestly don't have access to yeah. in a lot of different industries. Like people might think like, like what is all this pressure to create this dish or this experience? But like a good meal can last a lifetime, you know, and like a bad meal can also last a lifetime. Right. Which is why the stakes are so high, you know. So here's a question I want to ask you for a while, but I actually never asked you. So you really didn't cook Asian food, right? Like throughout your career that much. 
I don't think I ever did. Like at all? At all. Do you think, was that a decision or did it just turn out that way? Um, uh, I don't know if it was a decision. Like I think you weren't just, like avoiding cooking Asian No, food. I think it was just where my um, focus was at at that time. And I think honestly what food I'm still drawn to today. Um, but I will say that like even today, like cooking for my family, when I cook Japanese food, the steaks feel super, super high. And mm. I think mm. part of that is because so many of those dishes are tied to the experiences I had with my grandma and the food that she nurtured me with. And I think I'm allowing myself now for the first time to kind of fail at those dishes mm-hmm. and experience them just like I did with any other um, food that I had cooked before. Because I think before with Japanese food in particular, if I failed, I felt like I failed as a Japanese person. Right. Just like, right. I should innately know how to do this stuff, you know? Right. Like, I'm trying to pass down my culture to my kids in a way that my grandma passed it down to me. And it feels big when I can't do it in the way that I expect to do it. Um, but I think right now in particular is a time that I'm really starting to experiment with it in more ways than I had before. That's cool. And allowing myself that freedom that I should have given myself a long time ago. Invite me over, man. I will. So it wasn't a decision to not make cook uh, Asian food or Japanese food throughout your career. You were just drawn to butchery. Right. Yeah. What, what drew you to butchery? Was it the, it's because it's the hardest work. <laughs> yeah, it's the same <laughs> shit, man. I mean, it's the same stuff. It's like, I think it was it was hard. It was, you know, really, really physical. It's kind of primal, right? Primal. I think especially that aspect of it, like knowing that what you're doing connects you with generations upon generations upon generations of people that did it before you. Like the craft of butchery. Yeah, yeah, just the craft itself. Um, and I think there's something that really drew me to that. And I think, yeah, for sure, just fighting against that Asian male stereotype of not being masculine enough, you know, and trying to find ways to um, fill those gaps or the gaps that I saw at least in, in my experience to make myself more attractive, you know, right. In certain ways. Um, and I don't know if I necessarily needed to do that. Um, <laughs> but at the time I definitely felt that pressure. I mean, I think shit, I think we still feel that pressure today in some ways. It just yeah. It's, it's real. Ways. It's really real. You know, like, um, and Taylor, you know, he's a he's a tough worker, tough guy. He's a butcher for many years. I'm not tough at all. <laughs> I am I can't pass as tough. Taylor wears um workwear and like work boots. If I wore workwear, I'd be a phony. It wouldn't even I'd be like I look like a I phony. Mean, I would be at, a phony. At this time my workwear is cosplay like it's not <laughs> you don't actually work on a construction I site. don't actually work <laughs> like that anymore and I think that's something that I confront 
every day when like I work primarily on a computer now and it just feels like <laughs> money boots. Yeah, with my with my boots and my flannels <laughs> and my denim jeans. And I just feel like uh yeah, I I I still am drawn to work that does not happen on a computer. I'm still drawn to um butchery and cooking and all those things. And yeah, I, I miss it. Those are always going to be my passions above anything else. And if I was able to support a family of five on that wage and that life, and I was able to actually live my life and see my stay kids healthy. and stay healthy and all those things, there's not a single thing in this world that would prevent me from doing right. that. Like that is still absolutely my, num- my number one passion. Um, but life got in the way. And I think that's honestly part of the culture of kitchens that um, was the most corrosive is just like life was never allowed to get in the way. Like your life was the kitchen right? And nothing else. I miss weddings. I miss funerals. I miss, you know, birthdays. You're like, kind of not even upset about it. You're not upset about it because the people that you're working with are your family. Yeah. And in the truest sense. And I think that's why those people are still some of my closest friends. And I still feel such a strong bond with them. Is right. That like at that time they were my family. And right now I still view them as my family because we went through a lot of, we all sacrificed a lot to be there for each other. It's a tight bond, you know? And if you're not there for each other, you know it's not going to be a good day for the rest of your family. Right. Like, it's just not. It's not like other industries, right? You can just, like, say I'm heading out for the day or I'm I'm taking a sick day. Right. It's like, that production's gone. Now we're screwed. Now we don't know how to, you know, actually achieve the goals that we set out for. Um, And I think with that shared sacrifice, you just create this lasting bond yeah it's high it was a high stakes industry and i think for me um i wasn't cut out for it not that i you know i the work was fine it was just the culture for me like like mm-hmm. i just don't think i fit in there um i left for a different reason but i think it was good that i left when i did yeah. but i wonder you know maybe this for um future episode but i wonder if I had gotten into the industry now where it's kind of in a healthier, more humane place, honestly, Yeah. whether I would have stayed in for longer, um, to where I wasn't killing myself, uh, working, you know, whatever, two full time yeah. jobs, uh, in the kitchen. I wonder if I would, I would enjoy it more now. Yeah. I mean, I hope it lasts. I hope it stays. I mean, honestly, I've, you know, I spoke to it earlier. Like I felt like I saw the industry evolve around me. In some ways, um, as I saw it evolve around me, it was an industry I didn't recognize anymore. And I think I had the opposite reaction. It's like a turn off. It was just like, oh, this is like, why aren't we yelling at these people? They're not doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going fast enough. And you did see in some ways you saw complacency, you know, yeah, you saw for sure. that like people weren't treating this as like the number one priority in their lives. And at that point, it was the number one priority in my life. 
and as I reflect on that, like, I'm glad those people weren't treating it as their number one priority in their lives because it should never really be, you know? Yeah. Especially and, when you, you have family five. <laughs> right. It's really, <laughs> can't reconcile that, you know? No, you really can't. Yeah. You can't know? live that life when you, yeah. when you have a home life like, like we have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Taylor and I both have kids and mortgages. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's our life. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was awesome, man. Yeah, I always love hearing about Taylor's uh, <laughs> Taylor's career <laughs> in the kitchen because Taylor and I never worked together in no. the kitchen. You know, we were you know separated by like years, and uh, well, no, I when I was in, you were still in. I was still in, yeah. but I was a baker. Mm-hmm. You were a butcher. That sounds mm-hmm. like sounds like a nursery rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that theme of you know Asian men like us trying to demonstrate our our masculinity we'll probably get be talking about that every single episode <laughs> in just really toxic ways you know and i think yeah it's it's crazy all right well uh thank you guys for joining us this week um we really really appreciate it if you listened and you're here with us uh reach out to us we're on instagram now your asian best friends we are on, on instagram. instagram you know just come follow us follow along for the ride uh, we'd love to connect with you if if you can relate or if you you know maybe learned anything from what we've talked about. We want to connect with people. Um, next episode, mm-hmm. pretty exciting. Oh, I'm I haven't even heard about this yet. I'm ready. Yeah, Taylor, <laughs> I haven't told you this is not officially yet, but next episode mm-hmm. we will be discussing Justin Chan's oh. upcoming film Blue Bayou. Nice. I am excited. I'm really excited. Taylor, you know more about the movie than I do. I Once I knew I was covering it for work, I, I try to stay cold going into movies because I think that's a better experience for me. I'm just not knowing almost anything going in. Um, but I know it's an Asian filmmaker, mm-hmm. Asian protagonist, Asian star, yeah. Asian American protagonist, right? Yeah. And I've I've seen the trailer like two or three times. I think I've cried every single time. And Yeah, man. You know. And that's not saying much, honestly. Like, ever since I had kids, I can cry at anything. So. You say you cry at commercials. I cry all the time. <laughs> I cry all the time. <laughs> it's good. It's healthy, man. <laughs> Blue Bayou. I got a funny story for you after this. All right. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe if you guys are lucky, we'll share it in a future episode. But look forward to Blue Bayou uh, next episode. We kind of lied last week. <laughs> we said it was going to be a weekly podcast we're still aiming for that but uh, as i said taylor and i got shit to do (laughs) (laughs) we're aiming for weekly but it probably end up being closer to bi-weekly yes probably probably but back to the back to the movies next episode sounds good i'm excited all right thank you guys for joining us i'm bernard i'm taylor and we're your asian best friends we'll see you next time so long